and see your dirty pillows. Everyone will. They're called breasts, lady. Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast, where we do not call breasts dirty pillows. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. In real life, the Final Girls put in events and screenings that explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. And on this show, we take a horror trope, rip it apart, rummage around in its thematic entrails and figure out why it works, does it hold up, and what it says about wider horror culture. That's a lot of stuff to say that basically we talk about horror movies in depth. In this fourth series of the podcast, we're looking at teen horror, how it's evolved and why teenagers and especially teenage girls make some of the most compelling protagonists in the genre. Before we dive into our film this week, a quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Final Goes UK for updates, event announcements, and horror memes. We also have a Patreon where you can support our work if you so choose to and are so inclined, and we do post occasional bonus episodes over there. We kicked off our teen horror season with the super influential Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is now, we've decided, canonically a teen horror film. And today we're revisiting Carrie, the 1976 first big screen adaptation of Stephen King's novel, directed by a personal favorite, the macabre maestro of horny horror cinema, Mr. Brian De Palma. It's the night of the senior prom. The Bates High School gym is alive with excitement. Everybody is there, even Carrie White, the girl no one likes. Oh, sorry about this incident, Cassie. It's Carrie! And everyone makes fun of her. The girl who lives in that creepy house with her crazy mother. Help the silly woman see the sin of her days and ways. Show her. That if she had remained sinless, the curse of blood would never have come on her. The girl with the strange power. If I concentrate hard enough, I can move things. This is an episode we actually recorded last year as part of our Female Monster series, which, of course, you should totally revisit. But we can't have a teen horror series without Carrie. So I've revisited the episode, re-edited it slightly, and am reposing it for today's episode. This is a film that has meant a lot to me personally and is as problematic in many ways as it is a rich, layered text. Carrie is as much a horror film about a shy girl with supernatural powers as it is a portrayal of bullying, repression, emotional abuse, teen girl dynamics and high school politics that take a terrifying turn when our protagonist discovers that she has telekinetic powers that she can barely control. Like any good teen movie, things end at prom. If you're new to the show and have never seen Carrie before, please know we spoil everything pretty much from the beginning, and I really encourage you to check out Carrie. I wish I could go back and see it for the first time all over again. Joining me on this episode is the super smart film critic Dr. Kelly Weston, who is as much of a Stephen King fan as I am, and we talk in depth about the themes and the legacy of Carrie, as well as briefly touching on the comparisons to the novel that inspired it too. 
And with all of that said, please enjoy our take on Carrie. having me back. So we've got a lot to talk about with this film. So let's just dive straight in. When did you first watch Carrie? So my my arrival to Carrie was very belated actually. I was a huge fan of Stephen King adaptations um, from day, I think. <laughs> um, you know, I grew up on films like Cujo. Um, Cujo is responsible for probably like 60% of my fear of dogs and um, uh, <laughs> and uh, Dolores Claiborne. But I had never really seen Carrie. And one of the reasons for that is like, we'll get into it probably as we discuss this film. I love horror, but I do tend to, or I did tend to draw the line when I was younger at like, devil shit yeah so I was not crazy about possessions or any sort of thing like that and that was how I thought you know that's how I framed Carrie in my head having never seen it and then I ended up having to do actually um I think it was around the time that I was like interning with Sight and Sound or for the BFI I don't know if you remember this but that was like one of the first panels that we did together was the Stephen King panel this was I remember ages this ago. Kelly yes of course I yes. remember that's how we met <laughs> I thought we'd met at the BFI before at something else that we did I remember our first conversation but I didn't know if this was the first thing that we'd ever um done together the first event ended up watching Carrie for that event that was the first time I had seen it. I think I'd seen pretty much every Stephen King adaptation except that one. And it was, let me tell you, to to, <laughs> to watch that film as an adult, it's absolutely wild because, you know, some of its, its flourishes, its stylistic flourishes are very dated. <laughs> They're very 70s. And, you know, the gaze is very leering, but I don't, and I don't know why, because obviously I had seen Brian De Palma films, but I, mm-hmm. I was very surprised by how, um, uh, for some reason, how overtly male the gaze was in this film. Hmm. Yes, uh, that's definitely something we're going to talk about. So let's kind of place this within Brian De Palma's work. Yeah. Um, were you a fan of his work before? Kind of where does Carrie sit within it? You know, you use the word leery, and you're so right. Mm-hmm. I just rewatched the film today, <laughs> and I do yep. not... I've seen it a whole bunch of times and I've screened it a whole bunch yeah. of times. I, I do not remember when I first watched it as a teen, kind of just how mm-hmm. lecherous the camera is from the <laughs> very first scene. I mean, it's filthy. It's like, <laughs> I, it's, it is Carol Clover's essay, like come to life. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, fascinating. She doesn't really talk about a carry that much in, in, you know, her, her, well, for, the and the aptly named her body himself i think is what the essay is called um you know she talks about the ways in which horror sort of caters to a particular um audience a, a male a specifically male teenage audience and she talks about you know all of the different you know gender boundaries that are sort of negotiated when you're when you're watching horror films where women are victims but then you also root for women and you know the thing about <laughs> Carrie is like 
again, it's, it's very twofold because you're obviously feeling very sympathetic for her. She is, you know, I guess uh, to borrow a, a very trendy term, she's, a, she's, you know, an anti-hero, an anti-heroine, but you're also really invited to, you know, to gaze upon her in this way that is very like, yeah, it's, it's, it's clearly sexualized, right? Like it's very pornographic. Mm-hmm. I had, as, as far as Brian De Palma is concerned, like I had seen bits of Scarface. I'm a Michelle Pfeiffer fan. So I'd seen all of the Michelle <laughs> Pfeiffer scenes of Scarface. Um, and I'd seen Body Double. Um, I'd seen Dress to Kill. And I've just, mm-hmm. I rewatched it for this. It's fascinating to like, to to think about you know how those two particular films also sit in in his work because he does carry and then I think Dress to Kill comes out in like eight, 1980 81 or something like that and so they're like four or five years apart and it's still very you know it's it's they're both deeply gender text they're both extremely you know in their specific and distinct ways very misogynistic. Um, and at the same time, they're also, you know, so sensationalized. Like, they're really still very complex texts, I guess, um, to, to be more concise. Like, they're still really, there's, like, a lot to, to unpack. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, that is my, my relationship, generally, with De Palma, is, is grudging entertainment. <laughs> Grudgingly entertained. <laughs> I must admit, I, I grew up being a massive little De Palma nerd. I loved Scarface. I loved Body Double. Mm. I loved Snake Eyes. Um, so I got oh. introduced because, yeah, I loved, I loved kind of this, um, his very problematic brand of macho cinema and the fact that he was obsessed mm. with Hitchcock. And so was I, but ah. he was going to places that Hitchcock could not go into visually just because yeah. of the the time in which they were making movies and Carrie also ha- I mean all of his films have Hitchcock knots Carrie in particular yeah. also does Carrie was also one of the first the second Stephen King book that I read uh, as a teenage mm. girl and then I saw the adaptation and I remember really empathizing with Carrie and not really focusing so much on the style this time round though kind of re-watching it for the purposes of this podcast it was interesting. There's two scenes in the film. There's the beginning, which is like in the shower scene, which is very, very softcore porny, basically. Yeah. Uh, it's a very lecherous camera. But then I was suddenly reminded kind of when it turns horrific, it's the horror of this naked girl who's just had her period and is just assaulted by all these other girls. That was the thing that I always remembered about the scene and not so much the um, the gaze of the camera, which I guess right. is, is weird to a degree. But then there's another scene which I was purely when they're being when the other teenage girls are being punished and they have to do high knees and do um workouts with their gym teacher. And the, there's about three minutes worth of just a slow pan across all of their legs. Yes. Like ass, legs, 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 legs. But I mean, <laughs> I was just it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, those two scenes are so um, the the two sequences that you point out are are, are fascinating, right? Mm. Because you know we're talking about the the ways that women are sort of configured as monstrous, and the thing that is so horrifying, or the thing that supposedly um, 
initiates Carrie into her powers is her, you know, her getting her first cycle, basically. Yeah, you're right. Like the camera, it's like, you know, you're, you're, it's the camera's gliding through the locker room and it's like doing all of these close-ups on boobs and, and you watch Carrie sort of like massaging her body as well. So it Mm. almost, seems as if she herself is, you know, you catch her in the middle or about to masturbate. It's a very, it's just a very odd scene. And then it turns, you know, and I, I don't mean this about periods, but the way that the scene is framed is, is almost violent. Like she, she sees the blood and she reacts in horror. And then the other girls react in horror. And she, you know, one of the things that I picked up on while I was watching it this time was like, she, she keeps touching things that are white. Um, she keeps touching Sue's white shirt and she touches the, the teacher. Um, I think coach Collins, like she yeah. um, touches her white gym shorts so that it just seems yeah. that much more vivid. And the thing that is, is, you know, I mean, I guess not to be a nerd about this, but I, you know, the, <laughs> I mean, it's still late for that, Kelly. I mean, true. <laughs> um, yeah, she um, historically and, and mythologically, right? Like the period is linked to women's powers or, you know, to witchcraft, really. But like a kind of female and em- em- empowerment or or sorcery that men are not privy to or, or unable to access. Mm-hmm. Just an aside, I've never felt more disempowered than when I'm on my period, but I just think, like, (laughs) film of this period, like, this is 1976, and then more recently, and I think these things are just based on, like, actual rituals, probably, but do you remember the scene in Midsummer where she, like, Mm -hmm. she puts um, her menstrual blood in the the drink or whatever to give to him? So, you know, those things Mm -hmm. are, like, yeah, they're like passed down. But um, one of the things I, I find really interesting about what you just said was, you know, women are, are their bodies specifically are made monstrous and they're also punished. Like the thing that you, know, you sort of think of Mrs. Collins as the more, I guess, benevolent version of Carrie's mother, mm-hmm. White, but actually they both are linked in the ways that they punish other girls, younger women. Um in a, in a very corporal way. So Mrs. Collins does it where she sort of like makes the girls exercise until they are exhausted. And Carrie White's mother beats her and locks her in a cupboard. So yeah, in that way, there's a weird through line um, in this film about, you know, the body is this thing that women should be ashamed of. Oh, totally. And it's interesting, kind of Mrs. Collins, because she actually slaps Carrie in that scene. And I so zeroed in on the fact that when they're then in the principal's office, she kind of has this moment where she says, you know, oh, I also wanted to just hurt her. Like, I thought why the girls were punishing her and torturing her, making fun of her. Like, there was something about Carrie that made her kind of, you know, someone that people wanted to hurt which is such a weird and damaging aspect of this Mm. but then there's also the way that mrs white carrie's mother talks about bodies herself you know she she calls her breasts dirty pillows and she's so not just embarrassed by her own body just by the fact of having gotten pregnant and giving birth to carrie 
she yeah. also constantly reminds Carrie of the fact that their bodies are dirty and disgusting and she should cover herself up and be ashamed and just kind of, you know, jumping ahead a little bit, but the sheer fact of Carrie going to prom and making herself a dress that mm-hmm. fits her seems like such a massive rebellion against her mother. Right. I want to ask you because you, you see, so you've read the book and one of the things that um, I haven't, I haven't read Carrie, but I know that the book is very different in terms of her physicality. She is meant to be mm. like, she's meant to be basically fat and not attractive. And in the film, she's played by Sissy Spacek, who is, you know, Sissy Spacek is, is a very thin woman. <laughs> it's, you know, Sissy Spacek, I, I guess, in the film is meant to be like Hollywood ugly. Like she's never unattractive. Um, but the thing yeah. about Carrie in the book was like, she, you know, she had all of these pimples and stuff like that. I wonder how you mm-hmm. see that change from book to screen and like, what do you make of it? Well, you kind of mentioned it yourself. It's the idea of, no one in Hollywood is allowed to be ugly on screen. Right. No one in Hollywood is allowed to be plain on screen. So you're right. In the book, Carrie is, you know, she's a plain girl. She's just, there's so many reasons that people can latch on, onto and bully her in school, which they do. Right. And kind of here, because obviously this is a 70s Hollywood. And then in every subsequent adaptation of Carrie, really, if we look at all of them, you know, the Kimberly Pierce one, the short-lived uh, TV series, even Carrie 2, you know, The Rage, they're all perfectly, like, Hollywood actress-level, good-looking young women. Yeah. There's nothing kind of that would make them stand out, necessarily. This is basic, I think, is really interesting, because I think she's very... She goes to places, I think, with the way that she performs with her body, mm. that makes her shift on screen like if you see her in badlands and if you see her in um in this film she has a very different physicality about her but she is essentially you know very slim white blonde blue-eyed hollywood actress there's nothing about her that's unconventional right there is something about the way that she sort of contorts her body Mm mm-hmm and I think even in the shower scene, you know, when she goes from sort of caressing herself and be looking almost like, like it's a masturbation scene in a softcore in the softcore porn film, right? To being almost like a gremlin esque type figure that's hunching in on herself and bleeding and kind of touching everything around her and covering it in blood as well. And she's so distraught by it, she kind of holds nothing back, which is, I think, one of the the things that she really brings to the film. Yeah. The fact that she's not worried about looking Hollywood pretty all the time on screen. Yeah. What do you think about her? I love Sissy Spacek. Sissy, let me tell you, Sissy Spacek is one of my favorite white ladies and I hope that she doesn't mess up. <laughs> because <laughs> I just, I I love, love, I love her. She's, um, I first saw her as a kid in uh, this film called The Coal Miner's mm. Daughter. It's a Loretta Lynn biopic. Yes. And yes, it's a very, it's a, it's a Southern classic. <laughs> and um, yeah, I've, <laughs> she's in, but she's incredible. You're, you're totally right. Like she's a really physical actress as well. And I think it's also important to, you know, mm. this film, 
you know, in her filmography because you're right, she's done, so she does Badlands like two or three years before Carrie. And Mm -hmm. um, she gets a nomination, I think maybe her first, maybe she got a nomination for Badlands, I can't remember, but I think she gets her first Oscar nomination for Carrie. And then I'm pretty sure that it's like, right after this, right after Carrie, um, she wins for The Coal Miner's Daughter. So she immediately like establishes herself as a not just like a a versatile actress even though she has a very distinctive voice but quite Mm -hmm. a a serious actress in in a horror film I mean I don't know Brian De Palma films as far as I know now I'm I'm generalizing I'm saying this and maybe you will challenge me with facts but his films are not generally Oscar bait are they? No, I think you're totally right. And it's interesting that you bring it up because this is a conversation that we, we've been having for like the past, what, two, three years about horror films infiltrating the mainstream kind of art right. house uh, respectability, you know, getting nominations and awards uh, for screenplays, for performances. And, and the kind of people forget that Carrie also, the fact that she got nominated for Best Actress Hmm. is kind of astounding because this is on you know especially if we go back 40 odd years this is not a genre that is uh the beacon of respectability this is you know exploitation and uh, box office you know this will make money but it won't give you gravitas as a performer right or necessarily as a director right but i think the palma one of the things I always loved about him is the fact that he is, he kind of, um, you know, I might be wrong and I might be just projecting this onto his career, but he always struck me as a guy who would make the films that he wanted to make or would scam his way into making the film that he actually wanted to make. Yes, absolutely. Because, <laughs> like, the films that he'd made before were Sisters, Phantom of the Paradise, which I adore and is one of the weirdest fucking films that has ever been made, and Obsession. Mm, yeah. This is probably kind of his, his biggest... Um, his biggest film, I think, at that at that point. To be to be clear, but we don't want to use the Oscars as a barometer of any sort of value. But you know, they <laughs> they they are a, a body that has has presented themselves as as mm. you know prestige and and uh, or is conferring prestige rather. But Piper Laurie is also nominated. You know, this is a film that really like the performances in this film are really taken seriously. And, and, you know, on that note, I do wonder, mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you feel about Piper Laurie's performance in retrospect? Because there are moments of it that are just quite frightening, but also really camp, obviously. Yeah. I found it more frightening this time around. I think I didn't... I always found her, like, as a frightening figure mm-hmm. because she is just... The campiness, when I watched it uh, early on, always kind of went over my head and she just seems very grotesque and scary. And the fact that she was wearing kind of that, that white nightgown stuck in my head. And this time around, I found her her devotion to, you know, her religious mania mm-hmm. to be the scariest thing. And more than before I found the way that she hated her femininity and she hated her body and by extension she hated her daughter's body 
and was constantly kind of punishing both of them. Really, really scary. I mean, you know, it is it is a kind of a, a hammy over the top performance, but I have a soft spot for those. Mm. I mean, I'm a really big fan of Joan Crawford. Like, I have a really <laughs> big soft spot, soft spot for them. Yeah, I think that you know the scene where Carrie comes home from prom having unwittingly killed her classmates. It you know the scene where she's 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 monologuing about her disgust for her husband and what he sounds mm. like and and then that little you know transition where she says um but I liked it like I liked the way that he touched me it's a really to me I found like you know the first time I saw it which that was so yeah must have been five or six years ago whenever we did that uh, panel I found her like insanely creepy and frightening <laughs> and this time I just found her so sad I was really like you know here this is a woman who you think for most of the film as well so it's really it's a really I think nuanced portrayal because for most of the film you think like oh she just she doesn't enjoy sex like she can't she doesn't you know understand it like she feels that her body compromises her moral devotion to god um but actually it's it's something more, much more sinister than that it's like she herself is sort of split split herself between her nature or what's natural what feels good like she and I think what she hopes to sort of extend to Carrie or or at least pass down to Carrie her feelings about motherhood seem to be extremely um uh opposed <laughs> like she doesn't she she clearly like doesn't enjoy it her she finds her daughter to be this extremely treacherous almost frightening alien creature even before she finds out that Carrie uh has telekinesis before she decides that she's a witch and she needs to be vanquished it's very clear that her relationship mm. with her daughter is, is is extremely antagonistic and that there's no real nurturing there but I think the thing mm -hmm. that struck me about this character and also Laura's performance is that it's really it becomes yeah really sinister it's it's just somebody who is filled with self-loathing and and yeah that's really somber because of the way that we're taught to perceive mothers and the way that we're taught to expect mothers to behave and this kind of generalized idea that a woman is by default nurturing and motherly right the image of seeing Carrie's mother be so filled with hate and self-loathing and also disgust for her daughter as well and just be the the radical opposite of what we're taught to expect a mother to be I think also it taps the film really taps into that um that sort of general societal expectation of what we think mothers should look and behave like right because the end, the conclusion of, of their relationship is is very sexualized as well. Like this is a, a, I mean, I guess I would argue like a lot, if not most horror films are sort of premised on mm. this kind of pre-edipal um, conflict, uh, especially mm. when it comes to slashers. It's always like, yes, the the character had an extremely demented relationship with his mother and. Um, Mother figures are extremely powerful in this genre. And the thing yeah. that is extremely disturbing uh, 
about the end of Carrie is like, you know, and this has been over theorized is, you know, the stabbing of the mother. She ends up being crucified um, like the, mm-hmm. um, the sort the little statue of Christ that uh, Carrie has in her bedroom, I think, or maybe it's in their cupboard. Um, but you mm-hmm. know, she in, it's it's very phallic, like it's very sexualized. She talks to her daughter about enjoying sex with her father and and hating herself for it, essentially. And then she stabs her daughter in the back. Mm-hmm. And she comes down the stairs laughing mm-hmm. in a in a scene that is absolutely nightmarish. <laughs> it's not, and and I think like yeah, there's something about that that is 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 really fascinating. Essentially, all of the conflict in the film takes place between women. Men are not really a part of this, you know, violence, which I think is really interesting. No, men are total pawns, and I wonder as well of this emphasizing the the really intense toxic dynamic between Carrie and her mother is also another way of of Carrie being in conversation with Psycho which is a a film also all about mommy issues yes we've spoken a lot about kind of the adults in the film what do you make of the teenagers well, let me give you some context to this. It was extremely mm-hmm. fortunate, actually, that you asked me to talk about Carrie because I was already thinking about it a lot. Um, I was in the middle of writing a review of this upcoming film, mm-hmm. um, which I don't know if you've seen, but if you haven't, it's amazing. I think it's right up your alley, but it's a film called St. Maud. Uh, yes, I've seen it. <laughs> of course you have. Of course you have. I love it. I love this film. And so hopefully by the time um, this comes out, my review will have have been published. But yeah, so I was already thinking about about Carrie and and about the body and and well, specifically the female body in horror. Um, And the other thing that just sort of struck me this time around um, was, you know, I mean, we're talking about the body, but I think it's also really important to emphasize that these are like white women's bodies. And one of the things that's happening in the film is these white women are sort of creating categories of otherness within their community because it's a very homogenous mm-hmm. group of girls and they're all pretty well off and middle class. I mean, I think we're meant to get the impression that yeah. Carrie is lower middle class. Um, she's not quite poor. They live in like a very massive house, but maybe they inherited it. These distinctions between them that they're creating are very um, mob-like, like the way that they turn on Carrie and and throw tampons at her is extremely sort of reflective of, of a kind of mob violence. To me, it's sort of, it becomes a really interesting film about race. It's fascinating because a lot of times, I mean, I'm a black woman, so I quite often get asked to write about race. And that what that means is that mm-hmm. I'm writing about black people or I'm writing about films about black people. But Carrie is also a film about race. It's a film about white people. <laughs> and it is, you know, one of these projects that ends up, and I don't think that this is something that Brian De Palma like, actually set out to do. But it ends up being very emblematic of, of yeah, a particular milieu. I, I just don't think that he approached this project thinking that he was trying to say anything, especially the way that horror films nowadays get sort of tapped as being like, I'm saying this in quotations, but elevated horror is having some sort of like social realism. Mm-hmm. I really think that 
this is a movie that is essentially about oh the ways in which white people create others like she's other right like she she has a really yeah. distinct southern accent i find that aspect of the film pretty fascinating that's so interesting i never thought about it like that but you're right i mean the film is about otherness it's just otherness in the context of high school politics right. which usually manifests itself as bullying and it's how they define or pick Carrie as the other because on the surface and like we were talking about before there's nothing about her that makes her different from the rest of the skinny pretty white girls that exactly. are in her school there's literally nothing that would set her apart she lives next door to some of them they look almost exactly alike mm-hmm. and but there is that something element about her that makes her different and makes them latch onto her. And even that scene that I was mentioning before with Coach Collins, where she is sort of talking about the fact that Carrie sort of attracts, what's the word I'm looking for? Violence. Or she attracts violence. Yeah. What do you think that says, though, about Carrie being positioned as the monster of the film? You know, you talked about her kind of being you know she's got telekinesis that's the basics of it mm-hmm. but it's all wrapped up in religious iconography there's always the element of you know witchery and and then she kind of becomes unhinged in the in the prom scene yeah she's often mentioned kind of in in conversations or articles about the female monstrous uh so what do you think kind of all of this othering of carrie but also everything we've spoken about so far kind of builds her open to being a monster well i mean the thing about creating otherness or or uh, racism or any sort of prejudice is that it sort of threatens a symbolic order right like it makes your Mm -hmm. privileges precarious and tenuous and so you have to sort of reify those boundaries and I think the thing about Carrie and this is something I also think that De Palma probably maybe I just don't want to give him a lot of credit that's me being grudging again Um, (laughs) you know he ends up pointing out that actually Carrie brings out or what she symbolizes is a kind of monstrosity in all of them you know, they all menstruate, right? They're all, mm. you know, these are all young women uh, who, of, I, I don't, I hate to, to, you know, say it like this, but it's because I'm going to make this point. But, you know, they're, they are of procreating age or whatever, you know, it's like they're, that possibility within them and, and that sexual difference is sort of, what a lot of horror films have been sort of predicated on. And I think with Carrie, she she exposes that almost in, in well, in a really literal way, right? Like those other girls obviously are are menstruating, but they throw their tampons at Carrie because Carrie's never she's she doesn't know what a period is um her mother's never explained this to her so she sort of visualizes that right like this thing that is kept hidden mm-hmm. in most, for for most girls most girls don't you know i mean obviously girls talk about their periods but you know 
I don't know if I'm I'm being as as I want to be about this, but these are things that like are kept subterranean. So girls are very much encouraged mm-hmm. not to talk about their periods because you know that's something that you know men don't want to hear about or whatever. It's something that we have to keep to ourselves mm-hmm. or internalize. And so Carrie externalizes that. You know, it's also like it, it's it's crazy how. Chris in particular, because I think there's a way that she and Carrie double each other where Carrie is yes. extremely shy and sh- I guess chaste or yeah, she, Chris is, is over-sexualized mm-hmm. and um, explicitly mm-hmm. feminine. And I think there's an interesting connection between the way that you see Carrie learning about the way to perform as a woman that Chris is almost always doing. Um, Chris, we should say also was played by Nancy Allen, who is Brian De Palma's wife at this time. Yep. Yeah. She, you know, it's, it's, there's a, a, a scene where Chris is like putting on makeup and essentially what she's getting ready. The only thing she's getting ready to do is like, you know, give John Travolta a blow job so that she can tell him that, you know, she wants him to participate in the scheme that she's dreamed up about getting back at Carrie. And then Coach Collins showing Carrie that she can be pretty and telling her like, oh, this is how you fit in. This is how you have to sort of navigate this milieu is by, you know, essentially being a woman in in this film is it's a performance. I think that Carrie has a real the way that she is sort of literalized as other because she has these magical powers really sort of indicates that a lot of what is fearsome about women or or meant to be fearsome about women is sort of like it's all inextricably bound up in their bodies and and you know because I mean as we were saying before like the thing that sort of precipitates all of this is that she gets her first menstrual cycle so it's not even Mm -hmm. like the telekinesis becomes this really like fantastic embodiment of this thing that all women really are expected to have not in the sense that like all women are expected to have magical powers but that you know like what happens when a woman is is able to procreate this is the thing that is just on a psychological level for horror like really fertile ground no, no pun intended <laughs> uh no it was totally intended come on um <laughs> no but you're you're so right and there's there's kind of an interesting semi subgenre or kind of a, a quite a few horror films that sort of use the moment of a a girl or a young woman getting her period kind of equating the, the menstrual cycle with sort of a curse and they call it the yeah. curse in this film as well and here it it literally manifests as magical or supernatural abilities in Carrie, but they're never kind of positioned as a power. They're positioned as a curse. You know, it's something that will and eventually destroys her. Yeah. Um. But I, picking up on your point about Chris, though, I thought it was so fascinating the way you were talking about it because Carrie is the monster of the film, but Chris is the villain. You know, she's yeah. the one that actually puts a lot of the terrible shit that's put upon Carrie and that leads her to breaking point in motion. And you're right, she's her complete opposite in kind of every single trait. You know, she performs this version of hyperfemininity. She is extremely aggressive. Uh, she also kind of challenges, she has the kind of the opposite relationship with Coach Collins, 
also get slapped by her, by the way, but in a completely different context. Mm. And then, you know, she uses sex as a tool to get John Travolta to partake in her scheme. And there's such glee in her kind of humiliating and hurting Carrie. She's such a nasty character and not a single other person in that whole high school, in that whole environment can stop her or even see what's happening with her. So in a way, they're kind of going through completely parallel journeys. Mm. I, John Travolta, I can't remember what his character's name is, where he's like chopping, like he's hitting the pigs with an axe and she's like encouraging him yeah. and there's like this bloodthirst in her eyes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she like asks to be the one to pull the rope. Or no, he like offers it to her and she responds with something like really mean spirited, like, oh no, I, w- I was always going to be the one to pull the rope to let yeah. the pig's blood fall on Carrie. Yeah, yeah, she's she's a vicious little character, and I don't think she gets as much attention uh, because the film is filled with, you know, with with Carrie and with Carrie's mother, and they're much more flamboyant. But Chris is really nasty. Yeah, she's she's horrible. She's a real. <laughs> she's sort of um, almost like this patriarchal or misogynistic. Um, nightmare of a woman come to life right because she is as you say you're I mean you're absolutely right like she's hyper feminized she's she is you know sexually confident and the thing is that even though she embodies all of these really awful characteristics she gets hit so many times. Like John Travolta hits her, Coach Collins hits her. Coach Collins absolutely needs to be fired. I I think that Coach Collins is also a low key villain. <laughs> yeah. Hitting these children, that's not <laughs> that's not okay. I don't it's know. It's the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was just like, Coach Collins definitely believes in corporal punishment, and she's really not that far off from. <laughs> But yeah, Chris is, it's, it's, it's amazing, right? Because there is also something really phallic about her, her assault on Carrie, because there is that sort of double entendre when she's talking to John Travolta about pulling the rope, right? And they've all, we've already seen that their strategy or the way that she gets him to do the things that she wants to do is through sex. Um, so there's a kind of sexual undertone mm-hmm. to that exchange that they have. And then, you know, it's the inverse of the first scene or the first sequence where Carrie is bleeding, you know, they, the blood is poured onto her. Um, so yeah, there's this film is like constantly negotiating all of these, different sexual boundaries I guess I should say like sexual transgressions that end up being really fascinating um especially when you think of the fact that I mean this is film you know we set this already but you know Carrie does get a really bad rep as being a very misogynist film (laughs) so this is the thing like these texts are are really complex and it's impossible to dismiss this film because it is so rich in that way. Yeah, I completely agree with you. That's why I also mentioned that De Palma is a problematic fave of mine. Yeah. But I wanted to talk a little bit about, a bit more about the the prom massacre scene because that's arguably one of the most iconic scenes of the film and it's so interestingly filmed. And I wanted to get a, a dig into a little bit of that because there's a lot of, 
stylistic choices there that are very showy. And De Palma is very showy as a filmmaker. You know, he likes the artifice of film. He loves the split screen. He loves the slow motion. They spend a lot of time building up to the prom. They're getting ready, everyone, including supporting tertiary characters you don't even know the names of, kind of going out, getting their tuxes, getting ready, making their dress, buying lipstick. It's all very, (laughs) it's all very sweet. But then when they get to the actual prom and it's this kind of Carrie and Tommy getting comfortable and Carrie kind of starting to ease into high school life, which is so alien to her. And when we actually see the machinations, you know, the pig's blood thing happening, when they start going up onto the stage, it's all slowed down. And then when it happens, it also takes such a long time. It almost as if we're being asked to revel in the humiliation of Carrie. So what do you think of um of that particular scene and how it's filmed? Um, I think you're absolutely right. Like it's really prolonged, right? You have to you have the split screen, you have you're sort of dwelling in this moment of of Carrie's degrade degradation. Um, you have this moment where you are seeing what people in the crowd are really feeling, which is sort of stunned and shocked and confused. And then you have uh, another moment where you're sort of in her head and what you see what she sees, which is people laughing at her. Um, Her mother's forewarning um, has come true basically. Um, And then you see the, these, the way that people die, like you see Miss Collins die. You see the teacher who had picked on her earlier in class, the way that he dies. You see the kids try to get Tommy to safety. It's a different scene. It plays really differently in, in this particular climate, because I think, you know, it is, um, it, it really resembles a lot of films now about school shootings and, yeah. You, yeah. And, and you, you know, this is a period of time. Like this is, you know, it's 1976. Um, I hate this idea of just yeah. like, Oh yeah. It was like, it was an innocent time. Like, I mean, obviously horrible things are happening at this time too. There are a lot of, you know, for true crime buffs, there are a lot of serial killers out there around this time. Um, but I think one of the things that is truly well, I think that I found like really enduring about this scene is that, yeah, you are really encouraged or invited to sort of sit in this massacre in a way that almost feels, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. So you have to sort of, you're, you're watching all of these people that you have gotten to know in some way. So they've become real people. They become fleshed out dimensional figures you're watching them die and you're watching them die in a, in a really horrible way at the same time you're also sort of you know it becomes really rich because you're you are sympathetic to Carrie and you know that you know Miss Collins technically is is innocent like she wasn't laughing um but Carrie is mm-hmm. unable to control her powers it's a chilling scene even to this day. I mean, we were talking about how sometimes the the Brian De Palma's um, filming techniques are 
extremely garish or maybe the, a better word is like they're, you know, as you said, they're very showy. Um, but actually this doesn't, this doesn't feel dated at all. It feels, as you say, like really deliberate, really meticulous. Um, and yeah, it's still like, it's still a really frightening scene. Like, I mean, just watching it last night is still, it's horrifying. Um, and I remember thinking also this time around that it actually wasn't as long as I thought it was the first time I saw it. Like the first time I saw it, I thought it went on forever, but this time it's actually like, it's not, you know, Carrie kills the people in the gym. Um, then she kills Nancy Allen's character. What's her name? Chris and uh, John Travolta's character as she's walking home. And then she's home. You know, it doesn't actually take that long. It just feels like that because of, you know, the violence that's happening in that scene. Um, and you see, yeah, I mean, like, it, it's it's easy to see why it became such an iconic sequence. I completely agree with you. When I was re-watching it just today, I I remembered the scene really well in my head, but it almost, it definitely felt shorter than I remember it. Yeah. And I think part of that has to do with the way that that scene in particular has become so iconic and has been used so much even to, you know, re-release, re-promote, reposition, or just um, pay tribute to the film. Yeah. It's, it's always that prompting. It's the figure of Carrie completely disassociated from herself and in a completely unhinged state and covered in blood. And that kind of makes it feel like that is the whole purpose and almost the climax of the movie, when it actually isn't. The climax of the film is Carrie's confrontation with her mother and the destruction of their house, which I also had kind of, for some reason, misplaced in my head as something that came before the prom scene. So I'd forgotten that there was a double ending. Mm. The scene feels much longer than it actually is because it is so horrific and I think partly because of the split screen as well yeah because we're seeing a lot of things happening at the same time and it's interesting to think about it now because we're so used to second uh, to second screening to double screening things to be watching something and having one or two or three additional screens Mm -hmm. open up in front of us and us interacting with them in some way and, but it's still, even thinking about this kind of in the 70s, or trying to think about how it could have been perceived at that time by those audiences, mm-hmm. it's a lot of information that's being given to us very quickly. And all of that information, all of that imagery is amazingly violent, you know, with people being killed, but we're also seeing the killer's point of view at the same time as we're seeing the murders it's still really super effective, I think. Yeah, it's completely effective. And then, you know, it. you're right. You think that you're at the climax of the film and then the action is about to happen again. It's interesting because she goes, she goes home and she washes and she puts on a nice nightgown and she wants to be held by her mother after this horrific act. And I mean, the thing mm-hmm. that is just like overpowering about that scene is like, she's like essentially crying to her mother to hold her. And also there's like all these candles in the house. Um, and it looks very much like a scene of sacrifice. I mean, I guess I'm just thinking about like the last film that we did yes. <laughs> where it was very much like, 
dynamic <laughs> where there were loads of candles and somebody was being sacrificed. And yeah, you listen, I did not expect <laughs> I did not expect a through line to be drawn between Carrie and the skeleton key. <laughs> but only you could do that. I thank you. <laughs> it does, but it looks like I I guess me like I was thinking about that because of you know the way that yeah. her mother was so <laughs> steeped in religion and um she clearly feels like, yeah, she has to, this is the only way, like she has to kill her daughter there because of the religious iconography just really, um, beckons all these different, all these different stories from the Bible where it is, you know, because I think of the, the way that blood is so positioned in this film where she's like drenched in it and they're killing mm. pigs. And um, so, yeah, that scene really stuck out to me that, you know, she has done, she's committed this like really awful thing. Who knows how aware she is of what she has just done. That's not made clear in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she comes home and she essentially dies with her mother in her arms. In a really like you know womb like, yeah. well maybe her her mom is actually in like a womb like position where she's sort of like curled up in Carrie's chest. Well, it's it's very reminiscent. It's also religious iconography. It's it's literally the pose of uh, La Pietà, yeah. which is kind of that that image of um, the corpse of Christ uh, in the lap of of his mother. Mm-hmm. So it's the reversal instead of the child of the dead child um being held by his parent it's the the child holding her dead parent yes yeah i wanted to ask you kind of about the final scene Mm. i think it's really interesting that the film doesn't even end there which is quite a you know quite a hollywood climax you know big massacre house comes down the monster dies the crazy mother dies we're all good Mm. but then there's another scene and it's sort of the aftermath. And I found that that scene really drills down the theme of trauma mm-hmm. that lives throughout the film. What do you make of that scene and how the film explores trauma throughout? I mean, this is a... like Sue is... Uh, poor Sue. <laughs> she's... I, I mean, actually, I mean, she's, she's played by Amy Irving actually goes she goes on to star in my favorite Brian De Palma film which is The Fury um and I think The Fury is a little after this it might be Amy Irving interestingly enough is playing somebody who has telekinesis it's directly after Carrie yes okay um yeah so I mean one of the things that really makes sense to me about this film is (laughs) you know, that sort of like adolescent feeling of, of feeling like your body is out of your control. Um, and for the way that Sue sort of really grounds the film in that for me is like, you know, Carrie becomes this, she becomes almost mythical, right? She becomes really folkloric. I mean, her mom's on the phone. She's talking about like how all of these news reporters have talked or have like descended on the town and then left or whatever. Mm-hmm. And for Sue, it's just a nightmare. Like she's maybe, you know, 
never ever going to and it's it, that that scene as well is like truly horrifying I still jumped <laughs> last night and it's like a real classic jump scare but it right like she yeah that trauma is never going to let her go like it's just inextricable as part of her now she she comes to the gym to sort of see her you know her good act visualized and then she ends up witnessing a massacre she ends up witnessing the death of all of her friends and her boyfriend and Hmm. I think that it's, it's a perfect ending. I'm I'm almost glad because you're right. Like the typical Hollywood e- ending would be to end it with Carrie and her mother sort of buried. And it's as, as if they never existed again, right? Like you can sort of, y- mm-hmm. you can see that as a very neat, clean ending. And this horrible thing happened to this town. But actually what Sue does is, is really you know, reifies the fact that this is a, this, those sort of things don't ever leave you. Those things are, that trauma is, it becomes very much a part of your life and your psyche. And, um, they're not going to be able to move on without having that part of their history. Um, and Mm. yeah, I, I think it's actually, it's a perfect ending. Um, and Amy Irving's great in this. She doesn't have a lot to do except sort of like smirk, but I think she's <laughs> I think she's very cool in this. I love her hair in the cell. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think that that's it. It's a, it's a really brilliant ending because it really sort of connects those themes of 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 trauma and and girlhood and and um yeah, really cements this theme this really complicated or or maybe even this really contradictory theme that you know to be in a woman's body is is traumatic and 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 inescapable um but you're also yeah you're also invited to sympathize with them so and also powerful Mm, yeah yeah I couldn't agree with you more I love the ending I guess I was wondering like of the Stephen King uh monstrous woman because there are actually there are a lot of monstrous women in Stephen King's film, um, or his adaptations rather. Mm-hmm. Like, would this is this high up there? What are your favorites? Oh my god, that is such a good question. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you that? <laughs> You're the guest. Can I ask you that? Yeah, my um my favorite is Dolores Claiborne. Oh come on, Dolores is not a villain. She's not a villain, but I do think that that's another film that is doing similar things. Right. But I think in a, in a, in a much more, um, if we're going to call these, I mean, like it's, it's much more feminist, right. It's much more dimensional because the line in that film is like, sometimes being a bitch is all a woman has to hold on to. And it's about these murderous women who end up, but they have to do these murderous acts in order to survive. Like, that's a I I yeah. love Doris Claiborne is is first of all if you haven't seen it it's an incredible film maybe I would argue the best Stephen King adaptation oh David <laughs> I stand by it with you <laughs> I mean we both know we both love Dolores Claiborne yes. I love it deeply underrated film everybody should check it out yeah. Um. I wouldn't say it's the best Stephen King adaptation. What's the best? Oh, that's a whole nother episode. That's a whole yeah. nother two hours of us arguing about Stephen King adaptations. But going back to the murderous or villainous women in the films based on Stephen King books, one of my favorites, if not 
my favorite has to be Misery. Oh, yeah. Which is also, um, which is, you know, Kathy Bates, who's also the protagonist of Dolores Claiborne. And she's an amazing actress. I love Kathy Bates. And Misery, I've also read the book and I've seen the film so many times. It's also so extremely relevant right mm-hmm. now, I think. And also just taps into the idea of toxic fandom and the relationship between artists and an audience uh, that I'm really intrigued by. And also it's um, Annie Wilkes is, not, is so interesting as a villain because she is unhinged. She's not supernatural, yeah. but she <laughs> lives in a world where she has created rules, but her rules seem to bend morally in order to allow her to perform acts of violence and murder and actually the more you learn about her the more horrific she becomes so it's both a book and a film that really benefits from rereading and rewatching because once you know her entire story or more about her she becomes even more horrifying and I, and I love that about her whether as Carrie is someone who struggles to understand or comprehend herself and then loses it and you know is consumed by that moment whether it's Annie knows herself quite well and I find that really silly (laughs) yeah Carrie there's a lot of the a lot of horror is acted upon Carrie before she actually has this outburst and so it she's just such a she she emerges a much more tragic figure um than anything else totally yeah, I agree. Just to wrap up the conversation, mm-hmm. what do you think is the legacy of Carrie on on horror today? That's a very good question. Um, obviously, the the iconog the iconography of Carrie has has survived, and so many filmmakers have referenced it since. Um, it's fascinating that you know. Mm-hmm. Brian De Palma, because this, this is what you were saying earlier, he's so influenced by Hitchcock, and he loves a good shower scene. And yeah, in the same way, I, I think Carrie has become a real touchstone for a lot of other filmmakers. I mean, it's been remade. I think it's interesting as well that you mentioned the Carrie sequels, but you did not mention the Carrie remake with Chloe Moretz that was directed by... Oh, no, I did. Oh, did you? Oh, okay, I missed it. <laughs> Yeah, the Kimberly Pierce. Yes, 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 yes. Um, yeah, which is, it's, you know, it's a shame because, you yeah, it's a film that is directed by a woman. Kimberly Pierce did Boys Don't Cry, didn't she? Am I making that up? No, 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 you're absolutely right, yeah. she did. And so, yeah, you'd think that that would, like, add some level of richness to it, but it, it just doesn't. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that horror has always been a really... It's it's to me a, a woman's film. It's a it's, I I know like obviously it has all of this the fabric of the genre is very misogynistic. It's it's very racialized and um, mm-hmm. it's a really complicated genre. But it is ultimately you know a a a form that has been really animated by the fear of of women and 
also ends up saying really complex and, and fascinating things about the experience of women, even, well, I should say, despite a lot of filmmakers. And yeah, as I was saying earlier, I think this film that is getting ready to come out, St. Maud, takes a lot of cues from this film um, in the way that it thinks mm. about how women absorb um, their own genderedness, you know? Um, and, you know, I want to be like, careful about this you know women who I identify as women and and how they are mm-hmm. essentially in and this is something that happens in say mod I want to be very careful that I don't spoil it but you know the ways in which women punish themselves and and punish their bodies and that becomes a really fascinating through line in this new film that I think um, is absolutely uh, an influence of a film like Carrie. And yeah, I think it just is, it, it sort of really defined or begins to sort of, yeah, define Brian De Palma's career. I mean, obviously, as you're saying, like he did Scarface and he would do later Obsession. He does this film, Passion. I mean, his films recently, his latest films aren't that great. Um, but yeah, Carrie is still the film mm-hmm. that is talked about with a lot of reverence, even though I think it's a really complicated text. And I think people acknowledge that. I think you're absolutely correct. And um, will you come back and talk about St. Maud with me? Yes, of course. <laughs> Kelly, thank you so much for your time and for your always super intelligent insight. Thank you. Where can people find out more about your work? Um, I suppose you can find me on Twitter. I'm at uh, Kelly, which is spelled K-E-L-L-I, Weston. So you can find my work there. You can find me on a Movie Notebook. I've written for a film comment. Um, and I'm just around, just doing this and that, bits and bobs. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for having me. 